Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, March 15th. We begin with a discussion on the war in Ukraine. We speak with Andrew Asoulis, an expert in Eastern European affairs and fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. We ask Andrew about the significance of Ukrainian President Zelensky addressing Canada's parliament and what our government can do to further help the war-torn country. Next, we continue our conversation on the conflict in Eastern Europe, specifically the plight of the thousands of children fleeing Ukraine as Russian invaders continue their destructive campaign. We speak with Aparna Tark, professor of education from York University. It's easy for a company to tell their employees they have to return to the office to work, but how do you make your employees want to get back to the workplace. We discuss with an HR professional from Peninsula, Canada. And finally, it's a chance to learn more about some very well-known Calgary landmarks and some hidden gems you might not know much about. We kick off our series, Where We Live, and in the first installment, our Dave McIver features what many consider the symbol in our city, the Calgary Tower. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky will be addressing Canada's parliament later this morning, providing an update on the war in Ukraine. Russia and Ukraine have been in talks about DS escalating the situation and uh, look to be continuing those talks today. But to give us more insight on what's happening and, and why Zelensky is addressing Canadian Parliament, we're talking this morning to Andrew Rasoulis from the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. He's a fellow at the Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs. Good morning once again, Andrew. Thanks for joining us. You're very welcome and good morning to you. Why is President Zelensky addressing Canada's parliament? What What is the purpose of that and, and what does he hope to achieve by doing so? Yeah, so he's um, he's done a series of these. He's done uh, addressed the British parliament, addressing the Canadian parliament today and addressing a joint uh, session of the U.S. Congress tomorrow. Um, what this, this is a very much uh, a, a political uh, event. Uh, it's going to be a very emotional event. The British event was very emotional. I've, I've read that the translator, British translator, uh, who was translating from Ukrainian English, choked up during during the talk. Uh, Zelensky is a very powerful speaker. He's become a very, uh, like a great folk hero, if you want, uh, in terms of his resistance. And so uh, he's building support, uh, which, I mean, there's lots of support, but he's reinforcing his support because he's in the middle of a very, very brutal war. Um, and so he will, again, address the issue of no-fly zone. He knows that, that the position of NATO and the president is and, and our prime minister, therefore, is very clear that a no-fly zone, in effect, means a war between NATO and Ukraine. Uh, and Russia, sorry. Uh, because it would mean NATO aircraft would have to actually fight Russian aircraft and systems, ground-based anti-aircraft systems to establish air supremacy over Ukrainian airspace. That's a major war. And I, and I think people understand that. Uh, and, and Zelensky is really just using it as a lever to push for additional support, uh, which no doubt Canada can, can find some more ways of, of helping, and they will, uh, on the refugee side, on the sanction side, on the you know, hardware side. I mean, that, that will all be forthcoming. But if I could also say that we're also coming to a pivotal point of potentially reaching the beginning of the end game. Uh, and you mentioned in your introduction that peace talks continue to take place, and they are, there's a, another round today by video conference. And these are becoming more and more important as the military situation on the ground in Ukraine has now bogged down. The uh, Russians, essentially Ukrainian defense has prevailed. 
Russians have made limited uh, incursions in various parts of Ukraine. The strongest incursion has been in the south, where they are trying to establish the land bridge uh, between uh, Russia proper and Crimea. Uh, and that is centered on the Battle of Mariupol, that horrific battle that we were getting a lot of uh, images from. Uh, and that is the, the e- essence of the Russian military operation right now to secure that land bridge. But clearly, both sides are starting to realize that the war has grind- is grinding down to a war of attrition. And that, therefore, the only way pathway out of this now is some form of negotiated settlement in the sense that the Russians will not achieve their military aim, which is a complete occupation of Ukraine, and the Ukrainians will not achieve their objective, which is the, the counterattack to dispel all Russian forces from Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So neither will happen. So the only thing that can happen is a settlement of some sort based on political compromises. Well, and that makes sense, Andrew, on paper, a settlement, a compromise. The one major variable in the uh, you know elephant in the room is uh, Vladimir Putin, who they've been talking about. And I remember it seems like a few weeks ago that uh, analysts in the U.S. were trying to you know gauge his uh, mental acumen and his mental state. So, is, is it possible that somebody like Vladimir Putin would you know agree to any compromise? Well, I mean, uh, so we have to assume rationality uh, because if we don't, if the, if he's an irrational actor. And if he's an irrational actor and the rest of the people around him who must be rational, because you can't have everybody being irrational there, like, like Shoigu, the, 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 the defense minister, he's pivotal in this, and Gerasimov, the chief of uh, staff, these are pivotal players. They're the people who control the military. And uh, they're watching this, too. They see Putin. Uh, whether they assess the that he's irrational or not, I can't judge for that. But there is rationality prevailing in the, the who control the power levers of Ukraine, of, of the Kremlin in, in Russia. So I think they still assume that uh, they will make a rational decision that further military action is not logical. I can't guarantee that. I mean, the U.S. former U.S. Uh, director of the CIA said the opposite. He said that he thinks Putin is frustrated, angry, and will double down. So there is that potential. Of, 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 of the Russians bringing in further, because they have more resources. And there's another round of rec- uh, draft recruits that are coming in on April 1st. So I mean, they have a technical potential to drive on, uh, and their economy appears to be able to sustain some measure of effort. But, you know, what's the, 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 the probability of outcome there? It's so low for the Russians, the more they, they continue this. Andrew, so I don't know. you know, on no. that on that note, what, what are, are your thoughts about, you know, in their back pocket? What else do they have? Is China something that's sitting in the back pocket of Putin and the Russians? Well, chi- yes, China playing is playing an extremely important role. But China wants to come out of this as a winner. And basically, they they hold very important cards. They have the potential of being a broker. They are providing uh, limited support for Russia. Uh, there, there is this, you know, there, there is a larger antagonism that we know between the Chinese and uh, the United States. And so the Chinese have their eye on the big picture in terms of their ongoing uh, rivalry with the United States. So they want to position the outcome of this conflict in such a way that it would enhance China's standing in the world vis-a-vis uh, the United States. So at the end of this conflict, and this conflict will end in one day somehow, 
uh, will end in a kind of a new world order. I don't want to over-dramatize, but we're not going back to where it was in February of this year. There's going to be a new post-war order coming out of this. And so the Chinese are, are really playing that those cards very carefully. The other players, of course, are, are the Turks and the Israelis, uh, who are also trying to play mediator uh, roles to try and negotiate an outcome to this. Um, the other uh, part, part of the puzzle is something that, again, we talked about weeks ago and we continue to see, you know, sanctions and restrictions being piled on the Russian, uh, you know, not just the, the businesses, but essentially the people. Are we starting to see a, an effect, a positive effect? And when I say that, uh, you know, uh, an impact on, on the Russian people themselves when it comes to these sanctions? Well, yeah, we, we saw a, a kind of a dramatic illustration of uh, that Russian uh, employee of the radio, of the TV station yesterday, who ran across uh, when the anchor news anchor was giving the, the news mm-hmm. and with a sign, "No more war." Um, so that's that's something. That's a that's a new development. And she's young. And I, so what I'm trying, to, I I suspect is happening. The younger generation is being far more affected by this than the older generation. I think the older generation, uh, of which Putin's of that, you know, the 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 the, the baby boomers, if you will, uh, were the early post-war generation. They still uh, believe in a replaying kind of semi World War II things, and whereas the younger generation, they think of this as being really out of the past, uh, and they're far more. In- connected, they're far more international, um, and they're savvy. And so uh, the degree to which this is affecting them, uh, it certainly is. But the real question is, what can they do about it? We don't know that yet. We know there's been lots of uh, these young people leaving Russia. There's been lots of people leaving. Mm -hmm. So the question is, you know, but what effect does this have on the power structure in the Kremlin? This is the key. Yeah, we'll continue to watch it and love our conversations. Thank you again so much for joining us. Appreciate your time this morning, Andrew. You're very welcome. Pleasure to do it. Have a Thank great you. day. Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs. Photos of a young boy in Ukraine have been circulating online recently. The boy in the photos is crossing the Ukraine-Slovakia border, carrying a plastic bag with his passport, and shows his phone number written on his hand. The story is that his mother sent him to safety while she had to stay to care for her mother. In times of war, children are often seen as helpless and victims, but the children in Ukraine are being forced to hide or flee. Uh, they're not helpless, they're resilient. Joining us to talk about this is Aparna Tark, an associate professor of education at York University. Uh, good morning to you, Aparna. Thank you for taking the time with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, Professor, can you tell us about these uh, children caught up in the conflict in Ukraine? We know the stories we see online and in in news programs, and we we see their faces, but what else do we know about them? Um, Well, we know that one day they were going to school, and everything was normal, and the next day um, their, their homes were bombed, started, the bombing started, and everything changed. Their whole world changed, and it changed overnight and it changed in a dramatic and and unthinkable way um and children are ex- experiencing uh war in the way that that adults do and um with sometimes with very little way to express that and so i think it's really important that we pay attention to to how children are experiencing um the events that are taking place in ukraine and the ways in which they're caught up um in the conflict 
I mean, how can it not, Professor, scar all of these children in some way, you know, whether it, it be themselves or, or because of the fear for their mother who might be taking them out of the country, their father who's being left behind. There's just so much. And it's just awful that these kids are, are having to be a part of what's going on in, in, in 2022. It's shocking, isn't it? Yes. I mean, uh, it, it, it's it's unthinkable in so many ways. And yes, children will be taking in and, and um, you know, feeling pain and suffering and, um, and, and threat to their life. And, and, but they, they also, they'll also be processing that in, in creative ways and trying to respond in ways. I, I think that children have the impulse to survive. Um, uh, and so that's, that's something that we should also focus on. That yes, that they 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 they're caught up in in events not of their own making, but at the same time they're responding to them. They're supporting their parents. They're offering um, um, creative solutions. They're providing a distraction, um, and and th- this is the reason why we we should we should um, um, care. It's because the ch- the children are having to face um, what adults have the adult destruction of their world and they 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 their voices deserve to be heard professor tark it's very interesting because i know that you know, this impacts everybody who hears the stories and you know sees a boy with a phone number written on his hand and really that's the only id he has connecting to, him, mm-hmm. to his family uh but it's, it's even i think more impactful for parents out there with children and uh, children of, of a similar age but how do we if we have children explain it to our children that somebody you know perhaps their age is going through this on the other side of the world yeah that's the other thing i've been thinking about a lot i'm glad you asked this question because um children all over the world are watching and they're watching what the adults are doing and they're also watching and seeing their uh, their their counterparts and their classmates i mean that's how children see each other they see each other as they have sort of this kind of uh innate kind of identification with each other that i think as adults we lose they feel in solidarity with other children um even though they don't they they don't participate in politics so uh, you know it's really easy to explain to children what's going on they seem to understand i mean part part of it because of social media i mean i always feel like you need to be honest you need to say well there's this war going on and children are affected and you know you'll inevitably get um questions like what will happen to me will that happen to me and um and or some relief that it might not happen to them and then you have to explain well no war can take place anywhere you can go to school one day and the next day um everything could change and that's why it's really important that us us adults intervene and stop in the stop wars because children can't and so it's not it's not good enough for us to watch the war from from afar like we're doing and not say anything we actually have to we have to intervene in all wars so that children have a future all children um our children as well and the 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 question uh, the previous question asked about children in ukraine and the traumatic effects well children children receive traumatic effects vicariously so if we we care about our own children we we really have to um think about what war does to the world and our children's future. 
So, Professor, you know, we know kids are resilient, but still, and you mentioned it earlier, how do we ensure that their voices are heard, whether it's the children who are fleeing Ukraine and witnessing things that they never should, or our own children here in Canada? How do we make sure that the voices of these kids are heard? I think, well, first of all, in in an interview like this, which is quite remarkable, and I didn't think I would ever... I would ever be um, actually asked to give an interview because most of the time when you write or speak or uh, research children's issues, they go unheard. And you, you might even see at the beginning of the war, there was a, fo- a lot of focus on children. But as, as we keep going, um, we, we, we sort of lose the fact that there are ch- mothers and children in the, in the middle of this. Um, I think the way to do it is to keep attention on it, whether it's in, if, if it's with your own children, it's, if it's to speak to them every day about what the events that are going on. I'm sure the mothers in Ukraine are uh, responding to their their children. We see a lot of footage on that and their questions and their and their concerns and their hopes and their fears. Um, the main thing is to be present for children to take their concerns seriously. To even if sometimes they speak in ways that. Um, we think are childish that they're actually quite sophisticated to to ask them questions to check in um, and all, to, to not lose the focus on the children um, and during this war the media has has got to keep its focus on what's happening to mothers and children during this war professor Tark thank you for your time this morning and, and your discussion we appreciate it I really appreciate you having me on and i'm I'm hoping to see a ceasefire soon. Uh, in, in Ukraine. Fingers crossed. Uh, thank you so much. That is uh, Parna Tark, Associate Professor of Education uh, from York University. As COVID-19 restrictions are being lifted, many businesses and organizations are planning for a safe return to the office. But a recent Ipsos poll showed Not all that many Canadians, in fact, basically half, envision themselves working regularly in the office in 2022. So how can you get employees to want to come back to the office? With some tips and suggestions, we're joined this morning by Catherine Bergeron, health and safety team lead at HR consulting firm Peninsula Canada. Good morning to you, Catherine. Good morning. How's it going? Good. Thank you for taking the time. So let's set the scene here, Catherine. You're in your PJs. The coffee's on. Pretty enticing. I'm actually at work. <laughs> Physically at work. <laughs> but I mean, if people have been living that life, you know, the commute is down to the living room and the kitchen table. How do people get, uh, you know, companies get people to want to come back to the office? Well, it's the best way to proceed is, is for sure to, to work in consultation with with your your workforce, see what they want and try to find a compromise between what the company wants. But at the end of the day, it's really the the decision of the business if they want to bring their worker back they can make that decision and make it for everyone um you have to be ready to assume the consequence though there might be some levers if you decide to go that super so, hard route Catherine, <laughs> is it important do you think for the employer to involve the employee in the decision even if the decision is to you know get your butt back to the office but to involve them somehow in ha- what that maybe looks like yeah it's a it's a best practice, so you don't have to, but if you want to have some more um, uh, taken on the, the coming back to work, it would be a good way to do that. Um, it would be to just, 
it can be a survey, it can be a meeting where you take the pulse or on where people feel, what do they, um, what can you do, ask them, what can you do to make them feel safer at work? Um, and what, what model would be comfortable for them? Uh, so most of the companies these days are going to go with hybrid. You know, along those lines, when it, you know supporting employees, it might not be a one size fits all. Some people, after a couple of years, might come back, and then you know have a real rough go. So, how important is it for the employers to be sure that there's the support, like a an employee assistance program, and, and the resources are there? Uh, should an employee who has returned need some help? Yeah, that's a that's a very good point. Um, some people have. It's been it's been really hard for some people uh, through COVID, and um, getting out of the house can be more stressful than we think for some individuals now. So it's important to have support. Um, I would say it's important for the managers to be trained and to be able to recognize those signs of people that may be experiencing a little bit more anxiety, and also be prepared to handle such such an employee. Um, and on top of that, uh, it's important to have your accommodation process ready. So give a, give a good uh, thought about how you're going to handle an employee that says, that brings back a doctor note saying, I have anxiety, I can't, I can't come to work. Um, you should have a process uh, for accommodation ready to go. Good reminders all. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Catherine. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Catherine Bergeron, health and safety team lead at HR consulting firm Peninsula Canada. You can get more info at PeninsulaCanada.com. Over the next few weeks, our Dave McIver is exploring the people and places of Calgary through a special series called Where We Live. Today, we hear about one of Calgary's most iconic buildings, the Calgary Tower. The Calgary Tower has been a part of the Calgary skyline for over 50 years. I caught up with Josh Trapto of Heritage Calgary to learn more about it, the construction, the renaming, the evolution of it in Calgary's skyline, and the interesting ways Calgarians have seen it used in that time. The tower was completed in 1968. It was basically created as, as part of the, uh, the centennial um, project uh, for, for Calgary. So 1967 obviously was Calgary's, um, or sorry, Canada's centennial. Uh, of 100 years in, in 1967, and so the tower was built. Uh, it was originally known as the Husky Tower, uh, and then uh, became known as the uh, Calgary Tower after that. So I believe it set again as like a world record and either still holds a world record for like the continuous concrete pour. Um, it was uh, the, the concrete shaft of the tower was completed in, in just 25 days. Uh, and the other interesting, interesting thing about the Calgary Tower was the fact that it was also built, um, was designed to withstand any earthquake tremors or hurricane force winds. Not that we get those very often or if ever in Calgary, but it was designed to withstand uh, tremors or hurricane force winds. According to calgarytower.com, the tower was renamed in 1971 as a tribute to the people of Calgary. And Calgarians and tourists alike have always been able to enjoy a restaurant and observation deck since its opening. The restaurant was kind of the second of its type in Canada. So there has been a restaurant up there along with an observation deck basically since, since it opened. Uh, in 1968, so it's, it's been a continual restaurant, I think, with different operators over the years. When it was first built, the tower was by far and away the tallest structure in the city, but that has changed over the years. As the downtown uh, developed and, and more towers were built, 
the view to the north really became non-existent anymore. Um, you know, you still see it very much when you're coming in on Center Street uh, as kind of, you know, the focal point of, of the Calgary Tower. Uh, the view looking south uh, still looks, you know, great uh, in addition to east and west. But obviously the, the development of the downtown on the north side of the Calgary Tower has, has impacted, you know, its place on the skyline over the years. In 1987, a natural gas-fired cauldron was installed on the top of the tower to serve as an official Olympic flame during the upcoming Winter Games. And in 2014, LED lights were added to the exterior of the Calgary Tower. Similar to um, other um, structures in our city, it can you know light up uh, to show support for different causes in different days and, and that sort of thing. So you know, I think it still is very much a beloved Calgary icon. I'm Dave McIver with Global News Radio 770 CHQR. Where we live is brought to you by Furnace Family. Done. I love this series. I think it's super fun. I, uh, Dave's very excited about all the different things he's going to do and see in all the various uh, communities right around our city. We had a brainstorming, you know, session. So mm-hmm. I was surprised I was invited. So what happens here <laughs> is we said, look, let's spitball ideas of our favorites. Boy, the list was lengthy. Huge. And it's more in depth than just driving by something and saying, oh, yeah, we should check that out. Dave's going to be digging deep. And we're going to give you it's a great opportunity if you're new to the city. Yes. I just want to revisit some of the old haunts. And it's not just, a, you know, one thing like the Calgary Tower. That's one example. Yeah. It could be an entire community. It could be maybe the food scene. You know, mm-hmm. there's there are diverse things that, that make our city, when you actually stop and think about all the great things that make Calgary an amazing city, a world-class city. And a, we're really lucky to live where we do. It is every Tuesday and Thursday here where we live right here on 770. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.